This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Brian was short and tall, light and dark. He was smart and silly and arrogant, and sometimes he was a pain in the ass. Brian was a newly minted producer and editor in the film business after graduating from a swanky university, and he had a circle of swanky, about-to-become-famous celebrity friends who were all thin and beautiful and sharp. But the thing about Brian was this. He had potential. Brian had the kind of charisma that you felt before you saw, and once you took it all in, you were convinced that he was destined for greatness, and maybe, just maybe, if you were lucky, you could magically ride his stylish coattails and slide into home base on his first up at bat. Brian was the boyfriend of my roommate, Christopher. I decided I hated Brian the moment I met him. Mostly, looking back on it now, I came to this decision largely because I was jealous that he would take Christopher away from me. This wasn't jealous in a cute Will and Grace kind of way. This was jealous in a way before Will and Grace not very gracious kind of way, primarily because I felt threatened, and I was petty and insecure and didn't feel that I could compare to the fabulousness of everything that was Brian. The boys actually met and fell in love before Christopher moved in with me, but shortly after committing to each other, Bryant went off to shoot a series of films in Berlin. For months on end, I listened to Christopher agonize and longing over his long-distance love, but as a single girl living in Manhattan in the early 80s, I was happy to have the genuine companionship of a vibrant, gorgeous, gay young astrologer, knee playwright, who seemed to adore our cohabitation, despite fervently missing the love of his then young life. The orbit around Brian descended on our fourth-floor tenement walk-up when he came back from his film shoot in Berlin. Christopher was madly in love. Brian made a mad dash to establish himself as head of our little household, and I was just plain mad that I had to compete with him for the love and affection of my roommate. Since we lived in a railroad flat, I had to walk through their bedroom in order to get to mine, and while this was oddly comforting and convenient before Brian moved in, Afterwards, it was mostly annoying to all of us for obvious reasons. This arrangement lasted for a mere month or so when we all realized that our living arrangement wasn't going to work and Christopher and Brian quickly found a fabulous new apartment and moved out. I was despondent and slightly bitter, but I tried to put on a brave face for my dear friend who had finally found some happiness and true love. The new apartment they got was a duplex with lots of light and they went about gleefully decorating it. Brian had one piece of art he took with him everywhere. It was a big graphic print by Barbara Kruger featuring a silk-screened image of a beleaguered Christ on the crucifix with bold typographic statements emblazoned across his body that read, We don't need another hero. Mania's become to touch the skin of other men. This print mesmerized me for two reasons. 
one, because it was incredibly powerful and beautiful, and two, because it was a real piece of art. Other than my mother's lifelike portrait paintings hung over the walls of my childhood home and paintings hung in museums, I had never seen a genuine piece of art, complete with a signature and a number hanging in someone's living room. Further, I was awestruck by the statement, we don't need another hero, manias become to touch the skin of other men. And I spent hours transfixed on the print, rearranging the phrases, imagining the order that Barbara Kruger preferred and intended. By this time, Brian and I had reached a truce of sorts. Without ever discussing it, I think we mutually recognized that we were pig-headed and territorial each, but because we both loved Christopher, we quietly tolerated each other, offering up only an occasional eye roll when one of us was being particularly bitchy. In 1989, Brian got sick, really sick. It started with Kaposi's sarcoma and continued into full-blown AIDS. By the time Poison, a film he executive produced for Todd Haynes, came out, he could barely walk. Astonishingly, he found rollerblading an easier way to get around, and I often saw him on the streets of Chelsea, a wry smile on his face as he zipped around bicyclists and pedestrians. Despite my abhorrence for all things physical, he became determined to teach me how to skate, and I begrudgingly agreed to a lesson. I will never forget the autumn day he at attempted to teach me. Brian was skinny and pale then, and he held my hand as he tried to guide me to grace. I was awkward, clumsy, and covered head to toe in protective gear. Together, we laughed in mock horror as I fell time after time after time, we both knew that this was likely going to be our last afternoon playing together, and despite all our differences over the years, we held hands as tight as we could, not only because I needed the support, but also because we didn't want to let go. One of the last things he said to me that afternoon was this, Don't be so afraid of falling and failing. You will always get up. Brian died on February 27, 1992. He was 29 years old. After he passed away, Christopher didn't want to live in their apartment anymore, but he still had to fulfill his lease. I offered to sublet the apartment from him so that I could try to do the one thing that I was so afraid of falling and failing at, making art. I would sublet their apartment and try to use it as a painting studio. The day I moved in was warm and sunny. The apartment was big and white and silent, and as I walked around the familiar space, my footsteps echoed in the emptiness. When I got to the bedroom, I saw a package leaning against the wall. Taped to the front was a handwritten note from Christopher that read, Brian wanted you to have this. As I pulled away the brown wrapping paper, I saw it was the Barbara Kruger print I had admired for so long, so long ago. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Barbara Kruger. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Barbara Kruger is an artist, a writer, and a photographer, a graphic designer, and an art director for Harper's Bazaar in the 1960s. She then went on to become an art director at Mademoiselle Magazine. Ms. Kruger's background in design is evident in the work for which she is now internationally renowned. She layers found photographs from existing sources with pithy and aggressive text that involves the viewer in the struggle for power and control that her captions speak to. 
In their trademark black letters against a slash of red background, some of her instantly recognizable slogans read, I shop, therefore I am, and your body is a battleground. Much of her text questions the viewer about feminism, classicism, consumerism, and individual autonomy and desire, although her black and white images are culled from the mainstream magazines that sell the very ideas she is disputing. As well as appearing in museums and galleries all over the world, Kruger's work has appeared on billboards, bus carts, posters, a public park, a train station platform in France, and in 2005, Kruger was honored at the 51st Venice Biennial with the Golden Lion for Lifetime Achievement. Ms. Kruger is currently a professor at the University of California, and for the past decade, she has created installations comprised of film, video, audio, and projection. Welcome, Barbara. Hi. 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 It's so great to have you here on the show. Well, it's great to be here. I'm glad that you invited me. Thank you. You know, last a uh, couple of days ago when we first spoke and I was asking you about your bio, you said something to me that I couldn't help but write down because I thought it was so beautifully simple and, and profound. And you said, I'm just an artist who works with pictures and words. And I just wanted to ask you more about how you define yourself and how you feel about being an artist who works with pictures and words. Yeah, I mean, I just found that that was sort of the most economical way of describing what has been on my mind for decades because it's a way that sort of um, doesn't contain one's work to medium so that you can work with pictures and words and use photographs or you could use painting or you can make sculpture, you can shoot a movie, do a video, do an installation, work on the street, work in the gallery. You know, it's not medium specific. It has more to do with the way we make meanings. So I, I just felt comfortable with that kind of description. Now, I read in Art in America that uh, they, they actually crowned you the Poet Laureate of the Age of Spectacle. And I was wondering what you might feel about that description. Well, first of all, I'm um, happy that somebody knows my name and knows my work because I never thought it would um, sort of work out that way. I think that when I first started making work, um, the, the art subculture was a very different place. And the notion of prominence was something which barely crossed my mind, let alone being able to support myself. So um, any sort of compliment or acknowledgement of my work is sort of terrific, and I like that. But I also feel that no work, whether it's um, a piece of design, a piece of sculpture, um, a film, a novel, is ever as brilliant major and extraordinary or as thwarted, failed, and minor as it's written to be. So I think that so much description about all kinds of work is about a sort of hyperbolic sort of expression. And because um, I have a critical relationship to the idea of greatness, I'll, I'll take it, you know. <laughs> but I still think it's, you know, um, I think it's important not to be deluded about what the power of your work actually is. Well, I, I read an interesting quote of yours, and I believe it was in Remote Control, your book of essays, where you talk about stature as an extraordinarily fugitive and transient sort of thing, which is ruled by taste and drama and the whimsy of history. And it certainly seems the way that all artists, whether they be fine artists or musicians or poets, um, they seem to, there seems to be a real pendulum in terms of 
how people are viewed and whether they're hot right now or if they were hot last week or who's going to be hot tomorrow. And I think it's really hard to do work with ever uh, a pinpoint on what is going to please the, the, the market. Well, I mean, the whole thing is so driven by fashion, and it's brutally arbitrary in many ways, um, even more so now because, uh, again, when I started, there really wasn't very much of a constituted art market, and none of us ever thought we'd really make money from our work. I mean, now it's very different because of um, because of the amount of money and the amount of disposable income that's invested in the art market right now with the sort of um, dizziness of the stock market and the collapse of the real estate bubble. People, you know, need a place to invest. But aside from the commodification of work, the making of art, which I feel is the creation of a kind of commentary, that spirit continues, whether it's commodified in those excruciating ways or not. So I think it's important to make that separation, that work and commentary and the thing that makes culture should not be indicted because we all are functioning amidst this brutal and basically fickle market economy, you know. How, how does that impact you as somebody that is looking to always be creating work? Does it, is it something that you think about? Is it something that you feel impacts you? Does it scare you? Well, for me, it's kind of easy in a way because I try to make work about how we are to one another. What do you mean by that? What our social relations are as people on both an intimate and a global or a familial or an institutional level. Just how we are, how we talk to each other, treat each other, trust one another, from the bedroom to, like, uh, the boardroom, <laughs> from global politics to um, to something more intimate. I try to make my work about how we treat one another. And, um, you know, there there's been sort of views that categorize the work in different ways than that. But when I speak about my work, I try to really talk about that. So I see the art subculture, for instance, as an anthropology. And um, I try to do work about, certainly not about art, but about how we are to one another within that subculture mm -hmm. and outside of that subculture. You know, that subculture is just one of many vertical, hierarchical professions, you know. And, by the way, being an artist is increasingly professionalized, so, mm -hmm. you know. Now, in terms of, of creating art that reflects how we treat each other, do you feel that there are pervasive themes to how we are currently treating each other now? How, how would you um, describe the, the way that we're treating each other right now in the world? Oh, well, I, you know, I can't say how different it's been from hundreds of years ago. No, 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 I, I just can mean say now. that because of the access that we have to so-called information, so-called, because, you know, I don't want to somehow make it seem like this information thing is, fetish, is really fetishized as content. It is information, and it's free-floating, and it's global, and it's instant now, you know, thanks to a digital technology that really dictates so much about what our life feels like. So, of course, the information and the events that we're getting is accelerated now from what it's been 10, 15, 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, how that affects our social relations, it's really hard to read. Things go a little quicker. I think people are kind of distracted. Um, which and that distraction really helps certain powers that be on a certain level. 
mm-hmm. um, because the notion of histories has been more or less eradicated, and what people know about how things are and how they came to be that way is very marginal. Oh, yeah, they get a lot of that information from Wikipedia. Not that that's, you know, right. not necessarily a, a, an interesting forum, but it's certainly not the the standard for accurate information. That's, that's true, but, you know, I can't say it would be a less, very much accurate, less accurate than a printed encyclopedic form, which had its own ideologies and own narratives, you know. Yeah, and propagandas. Yeah, know, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, did you, you said that when you were younger that, you know, you didn't really expect um, to be successful at painting or to even make a living. Did you always want to be an artist? Did you always want to pursue this type of life? Oh, no. I mean, I didn't really. Um, I think one of the reasons that I thought about art is that I was one of the few kids in my class, there were always a few, who knew how to draw, you know, (laughs) and of course it had to do with, you know, this replication of the real, that if you had that talent, then you were an artist, which of course is a very simplified way of being an artist, it's a skill set, but it's not necessarily an art, Um, but no, I didn't think I'd be an artist because I didn't know anything about art and and came from a very sort of... um, very sort of poor working class family in Newark, New Jersey, and no one in my family had really gone to college, and uh, I certainly didn't know about the art world or what it might be mean to have the luxury of um, objectifying my experience of the world and stuff like that. Well, Barbara, I feel like I'm going to leave our listeners with a cliffhanger now because um, when we, I'll have to ask you the, the next questions about what happened after that, after the break. So I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the artist Barbara Kruger. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Joshua Davis and his studio, the Department of Notation, start with design elements and then use computer programs to randomly generate artwork based on mathematical algorithms. Josh, tell us about your process. And it actually starts not digital at all. I actually just ink the stuff with just an ordinary rapidograph ink pen. And then I literally retrace what I've just drawn so that I can use them inside of the computer. And then I can let these things run. I can let these things make decisions. I'm controlling the system. I'm saying you have to stay in this spot. You can only be these colors. You can't go any smaller than this. You can't go any bigger than this. So I'm constructing all of these boundaries and the system acts randomly within those boundaries. I generally don't know where things are going to take me. So it's kind of like generating snowflakes. You've been listening to Voices of Design brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Joshua Davis tells us about one of his recent projects. Hi, I'm Sean Markey of Georgia Pacific, and I'm here to invite you to attend Fuse, Brand Identity and Package Design, this April in New York City. You might have heard the Bad Boys of Design segment on Design Matters, but now you can see it in person. The Fuse event is proud to announce their own version of the show, the Bad Boys of Brand Design, as the official kickoff to the 2007 event. Join me along with other brand designers from Colgate-Palmolive, Starbucks, 
Johnson & Johnson and Del Monte as we discuss how design can strategically build your brand. Plus, hear from design leaders from OXO, Procter & Gamble, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, and more, who will give you actionable insights for fueling change and driving growth in your company. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www.iirusa.com slash BIPD or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I'll see you April 16th to the 18th at Pier 60 at Chelsea Piers in New York City. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 324 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the artist Barbara Kruger. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are now open. Please call 1-866-472-5790. Before we take some callers, because I know we have on, some on the line, um, Barbara and I were just talking about the piece that I was describing in my opening monologue and was questioning the piece because she didn't remember a piece that was quite of that description. And so, Barbara, I'm wondering if uh, it's possible that it might be a counterfeit. Well, I don't see it as counterfeit. I mean, I love stuff like this, you know. For someone who never thought that her work or name would enter a public discourse at all, um, I find it really interesting, you know, that the work um, has a fluency and a look. That work, anyway, certainly not, you know, I mean, I've been um, doing installation works for the past 12 years, but the work, um, the black and white and red, text work um, is work that has developed its own sort of following and uh, it is frequently quote appropriated unquote and um, I find that amusing that's fine with me I'm <laughs> you know, there's a, a presidential candidate in France I read about this on the design blog design observer there's a presidential candidate who is basically copying that iconic look for the uh, voting posters yeah. Well, you know, I don't own Futura Bold Ital, and I don't have a very proprietary notion that that's mine and you can't use that. And, you know, I mean, a lot of artists are very proprietary about a look. I'm really not one of them. So, uh, you know, I find it amusing and, and, um, and interesting. 
No. Well, we were talking a little bit before uh, the break about you know what you thought you might be when you grew up and, and the life that you were leading. But before we go back to that conversation, I'd like to take a caller. We have Gregory on the line. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Um, my, my question actually is not an art question. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in the fact that uh, you worked for Harper's in the 60s. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's the other thing that Barbara mentioned during the break. She worked for Mademoiselle and House and Garden. You know, I think the, the issue that we have um, when we're interviewing such famous people is that there's so much information that not all of it is correct. And I made a mistake with that um, in my intro. I said that Barbara worked for Harper's Bazaar, but in fact it was Mademoiselle and House and Garden, Gregory. Well, you know, that's still okay because, because <laughs> of course um, it is. <laughs> I, I can put this in a very general sense. I, I love, I haunt book, old bookstores, and I'm, I'm always going after the magazines. I, I happen to love uh, Women's Day because I get all the old AMP ads. But um, I, I see fashion magazines, for example, from that period, and, you know, they're, they're very focused and they're very sleek and they're very beautiful. And, you know, like today I wouldn't even pick up a Vogue, A, because I couldn't lift it. It weighs so much. And B, because there's so much in there that it seems to be very unfocused. And I, I guess when you look at magazines across the board uh, on the stands today, like all the popular culture magazines, there's so much in there. I mean, I, I wonder how you think – the obvious answer is, well, you need the advertisers, so that's why there are all of the advertisements in Vogue, for example. But then how did magazines in the before times survive? And, you know, don't you think it's a little oversaturated? Well, you know, I'm not an expert on magazines. I, you know, I worked at Condé Nast, and um, at that time, um, magazines. Interestingly enough, I remember being at some meetings where, where the where the where the bosses were talking about how television lost a threat to magazine culture. You know, and of course, it didn't play out like that at all in many ways. But now, now we see the change in how we receive our um, our periodic information through 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 the internet. Of course, you know. So what's going to happen to print. Um, but, you know, I think that magazines are sort of niche cultures and they, they cater to so many subcultures and uh, I am not a big reader of magazines, um, especially fashion magazines because I so know how they're put together and, you know, it, it's really not that compelling to me. But um, it was not really that different. There was, uh, even at that time, of course, magazines were basically catalogs for color advertising and we as opposed to black and white, which was cheaper at that time. But, you know, um, I don't think the differences were that huge. And also it was the late, um, my years at Condé Nast were about 68 to 77, mm. you know, stuff like that. That's right. I mean, do you, do you ever, I mean, I, then you don't love the magazines, I get that. But um, do you, don't you think it's kind of a, um, an interesting thing that there's so much in there that you kind of wonder how anybody can focus on it? And in a way, um, you know, you sort of see a very unfocused society with all of their, their iPods and their Blackberries and everything, which is odd because they have to focus on it, but at the same time, they're not focused people. Right. Well, it's not about focus, and uh, it's not about focus at all, and uh, it's about, you know, a sort of multiple activity, a multiple simultaneous activity. And in that way, magazines are kind of good because they really didn't ask for your focus. They asked for a very quick scan, you know, a very quick page turning. It wasn't like to read a novel or, you know, a long sustained text. So in many ways, they were the precursors of the magazine format on television, all the entertainment shows, for instance. Interesting. You know? Interesting. So, Thank you. Wow. 
Anyway. That's interesting. That's such an interesting observation. That's that's really amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for calling. Thank <laughs> you for calling, Gregory. I didn't even make that connection. So thanks. Thank you for that. Thank you. you. A different perspective. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. You know, Barbara, it's interesting that um, you're talking about um, attention, so to speak. Um, I, I read that you have a very short attention span. I don't know if that's true or not, given all of the information that we found on you. Um, but that I, I read that you watch TV and you think that commercials shouldn't be any longer than 10 seconds at the most. And I wonder if you still feel that way or if you even yeah, said it to yeah, begin I with. I have a short <laughs> attention span, which connects me to to my culture. <laughs> and uh, like all my work, it's not like my work is about you or they. It's about me and we, too. Mm-hmm. I am in yeah. that work. Um, so, yes, I have a short attention span, and I also have developed over these years a certain understanding about how visuals work. And to me, you know, 10 seconds is a long commercial. You yeah, know? And I absolutely. think that connects with many people today. I mean, things are so accelerated. Sometimes I see sort of graphic introductions or commercials, mostly graphic introductions, usually on public TV, and they're always like, you know, 35 seconds too long. There are too many graphic (laughs) aspects, too many techniques. They don't really understand their viewer. It has to be accelerated in that way, you know. Do you feel like we're living in an age of sensory overload, or do you feel like there's more, the more the merrier? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. It's hard to say what overload is. Sensory, yes, but in terms of the level of meaning and ideas, I think we're deeply undernourished, you know. And why do you think that is? I mean, do you think that's a result of the quality of the artwork that's being produced? Do you think that's the quality of the advertising that we're facing? Oh, why I do you think feel it has almost nothing to do with the artwork. I think it has to do with what public education has become in this country. And the way it's constructed, uh, No Child Left Behind is about testing. It's not about sustained thought or, or critical thinking. Um, it's not about really the promotion of the importance of histories and how history lives in popular memory. Those questions are not engaged at all. So it's much, I mean, our art has almost nothing to do with it. In fact, the notion of art is so marginalized in, in America totally marginalized, you know. Um, of course, there are many more young people going to art school now, so that's, that's some of the contradictions. But the more people who can create commentary about what it means to be alive, to live a, lo- to live a life, to take another breath, the better a culture will be. But that work is very marginalized, except, you know, within the secondary market of an auction room where, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a good investment. Right now, is there any place that you feel that art isn't marginalized, that where it's being created in terms of uh, the origin? Well, first of all, I should say that I'm glad that I'm here, you know, and I think that this is an interesting and complex and vital and problematic nation, and I'm glad that I am here. Certainly as an artist and as a woman artist, I was much better off growing up and becoming that here than in Europe at that time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Given that, uh, however, when you go to Europe, the notion of the arts is much more embedded within culture. You know, um, there are huge art shows in Europe that draw many, many people. It's not just going to the Museum of Modern Art. It's more of an understanding. Even in London, you know, people just know what the Tate is, and they know it's an, it's an important representative of that city and what it means to that culture. And I think that it can be true of American museums, too, but America is much bigger and broader and complex a, a nation. But the arts are totally marginalized here, and they're suspect. 
they're basically suspect because the creation of commentary and having a memory about what history is and how it's constructed is suspect. All you have to do is watch television, watch the talking heads, watch the 24-hour news cycle, you know? Mm -hmm. And the way that's contradicted is in some of the TV shows, not necessarily the reality shows, but even they're anthropological and interesting. You watch some of the narratives, the one-hour TV narratives, I think they're very telling and interesting and, and very productive culturally. You know, I think television has extraordinary power, and I'm critical of it, but I also think that it's, um, I think anything can be art. Television can be art. A building can be art. Uh, a movie can be art. A novel yeah. can be art. You know, a print ad can be art, a TV commercial can be art, but there are degrees what makes it just a facile exercise in, in mechanisms and what makes it art. Yeah, yeah um, you wrote something about, about this in um, one of your essays in Remote Control in Arts and Leisures, wherein you stated that the video camera had replaced the mirror as the reflection of choice. And uh, when I was reading that in the last couple of weeks, I, I couldn't help but think about the enormous popularity of something like YouTube. Mm -hmm. And it always seemed as if you were predicting the future. And I was wondering what you thought of the way our culture is videotaping every single thing we're doing now and posting it for the world to see. I mean, the, the enormous amounts of people that get true joy and, and titillation from watching a, a cat flush a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I'm up for that. I think that's funny. You know, it's just the cute factor permeates culture. I mean, better the cute factor than, like, some brutal unconscious foreign policy. You know? Well, no, and then you see that, too. Yeah, yeah. You I know, mean, and, uh, yeah. but... but thing is, um, I think that um, it's an interesting kind of kind of um, construction that people are almost frightened to experience the world without experiencing it through a lens. Mm -hmm. This was always true, even the more sort of formative stages of photographic practice, uh, the whole notion of street photography, you know, framing the other in that way. And I think that's problematic and has a lot of exploitative aspects. But I think when you point your camera at your it really talks about how the notion of the diary has morphed from a private sort of secret narrative to one that is totally public and is not enough that it's in words, but it has to be a picture, not your words, but your face. You know, so it's a mixture of voyeurism and narcissism that has come together to make the culture as we know it now. I mean, I find it incredibly fascinating because I feel that the more disintegrated our traditional frameworks of community um, disintegrate, the more we create these virtual communities where we're essentially trying to do the same thing that we used to do with our families and our friends. You know, we have this exchange but it's all for a community that is virtual as opposed to actual. And, and I can't help but wonder what that is going to do to our culture as we lose the true connections or the, the more physical connections for the more virtual ones. Well, you know, I, I can't even talk about true. I could just say it's another way of people connecting. Yeah, yeah. Even the notion of community is one that bears a lot of scrutiny. It's a word that's used so much. And I say, well, what does that mean, really? Um, but I, I think that in many ways what we're seeing is a literalization of the phrase outer body experience, out-of-body out experience, yeah. is that we're making connections, but they're not necessarily embodied in the way that we once understood that to mean, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think the world is an accelerated one, 
um, and yet we are still tied to the finiteness of our bodies. That's a problem. <laughs> well, for those of us who'd like to live forever, especially. <laughs> now, um, while I think that um, a lot of our listeners are, are very familiar with some of your earlier iconic work, your, your work has really um, grown tremendously and is in, you're doing so many different things now with video installations and projections. Um, what are some of the current projects that you're working on? Well, um, the last large video project I did was a, a four-channel um, video, um, which uh, changes according to the space that it's in. The most exciting sort of version, rendition of it was in Glasgow uh, last year, um, where it was projected in a space that was about um, 30 feet high, ceilings about 200 feet wide and um, the images were huge and it was um, called 12 and there were um, four images facing each other, sometimes two facing each other and they were um, 12 conversations, the whole thing lasted for 12 minutes and it was a conglomeration of people, young people, students, lovers, friends, uh, co-workers. Um, basically sitting around this non-existent table as you're in the installation, it sort of towers over you and you're caught in the middle of this conversation, which is both about love and betrayal and competition and admiration. Um, and connects in a way to the, an earlier installation I had done, um, which involved um, three videos in three tunnels and a larger room with text which changed every eight seconds. There were 120 texts. So it goes from sort of a private view of conversations to a large sort of babble of commentary. Um, I think what's interesting for me um, in around 1990, I started doing larger room installations as opposed to discrete works. Mm -hmm. um, and that was only when I could afford to make them. And um, they were sort of more immersive and they enveloped the viewer more. And that was important to me because architecture is my first love. Yes. I really um, sort of know the most about or understand in a way. And uh, it was a chance to use space in a way that engaged the body and sort of um, in sort of determined how our readings of images and text would be, um, how they would proceed. So that was sort of a breakthrough in my work, and I've been doing that ever since. Now, what made you decide not to pursue architecture as a practice? Well, I, you know, um, I only went to school for about a year and a half, two years, my family. Well, we didn't have any money for me to continue. So I was out after about a year and a half of school. I was out in the world. And uh, I was intimidated also and wasn't sure I could do it. But I really had a very short stay in school. So um, it was sort of uh, outside the realm of my family's ability to sustain me in a, a four-year university situation. And um, what made you decide to pick graphic design as a, an area to go into at the time? It sort of picked me. You know, I uh, I'd gone to Syracuse for a year, uh, university. I didn't really know why. I felt like a Martian there, but it was supposedly had a good art department. And then I had to transfer back into the city because my father was ill, and I went to Parsons um, for almost a year, not quite. And it was at Parsons that... Um, I met Dean Arbus, who was my photo teacher, and Marvin Israel, who um, was it was foundation year, and so he was a teacher in a design class, and, and um, he was really sort of um, 
an important figure to me, as was Deanne. And that's how I sort of got familiar with, you know, the notion of, you know, magazines and design and especially editorial design. And soon later I applied for, I worked as a billing clerk for a while and a telephone operator. And finally <laughs> I got a job at Condé Nast doing sort of back of the book at that time were called turns. And then after a while I started to do front of the book uh, design work. Um, I, I was never an art director there. I, I was a designer. And I did that for a number of years before I switched over at House and Garden. I became a picture editor. So um, that was that. There was a lot of writings that I worked in. Advertising, I never worked in advertising. What I sort of understood was editorial design and the fluencies that I developed at Condé Nast. My job with some major alterations on the level of content soon became my work mm -hmm. as an artist. And when, how did you uh, make the break from commercial artist to fine artist? Well, you know, I, I, you know, when I first started, I was very young, and there were magazines like um, Nova, you know, which I thought was so fabulous. Yeah. I wanted to be art director of the world, and that lasted about 20 minutes. I just couldn't do it because I realized that, you know, and I think that this comes into always issues about the discourses around the so-called art and so-called design. To me, the difference has always been the kind of client relationship involved. And I realized that I was not good at creating someone else's image of perfection. And I think that, um, to me, a lot of people who work as designers um, are incredibly creative and have such an inventory of creative solutions. And uh, many times when you're working within the art subculture, you're very creative, but the need to create variance and to please so many different clients um, just doesn't exist on the same level. Yes, there's this far off disjointed notion of a client if you think of somebody, a collector or someone, except, except when I started there were no collectors who were interested in work and I never thought I would sell any work. So I think the real difference is whether you were dealing with your own expectations or whether you're trying to please or solve problems um, in terms of what someone else needs from you. Yes, yeah, solving somebody else's problems is essentially what graphic designers yeah, do. Yeah, and I have tremendous respect for it. Uh, I just see so many things done within the subculture that if they were within an art culture as opposed to a design culture would be huge. It's funny how things are va valorized in different cultures, you know. I think that there are a lot of real terrific film and video work done within the art world. but. To me, also, within the movie world, making a large, you know, ambitious movie is one of the most complicated visual exercises you could possibly have. I think some of the people that do that work are filmmakers. Some of them are filmmakers who happen to be artists. How you draw the distinction is complicated and has to do with taste and what your expectations of what you're seeing are. But some of the strongest work I've ever seen have been movies, for instance. You know, or buildings, or I see some design work that I think is extraordinary. You know, so it's just, you know, it's a very free-floating notion, but I think a client relationship can be a very defining element in what it means to be a designer as opposed to what it means to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And that's true of an architect also. Yeah, that's true, actually, because yeah. you are essentially creating something either for someone else or with somebody else's approval. 
Mm-hmm. But I think that there's extraordinary work that can that can do both and you know be artful. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Barbara, we have to take our our next break. Um, sorry about that. I'd like to keep talking on air with you so that everybody can keep hearing all these extraordinary thoughts you have. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the artist Barbara Kruger. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. The Bottom Line in Business Talk. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Joshua Davis and his studio, the Department of Notation, start with design elements and then use computer programs to randomly generate artwork based on mathematical algorithms. Josh, tell us about your process. And it actually starts not digital at all. I actually just ink the stuff with just an ordinary rapidograph ink pen. And then I literally retrace what I've just drawn so that I can use them inside of the computer. And then I can let these things run. I can let these things make decisions. I'm controlling the system. I'm saying you have to stay in this spot. You can only be these colors. You can't go any smaller than this. You can't go any bigger than this. So I'm constructing all of these boundaries, and the system acts randomly within those boundaries. I generally don't know where things are going to take me, so it's kind of like generating snowflakes. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Joshua Davis tells us about one of his recent projects. Hi, I'm Sean Markey of Georgia Pacific, and I'm here to invite you to attend Fuse, Brand Identity and Package Design, this April in New York City. You might have heard the Bad Boys of Design segment on Design Matters, but now you can see it in person. The Fuse event is proud to announce their own version of the show, the Bad Boys of Brand Design, as the official kickoff to the 2007 event. Join me along with other brand designers from Colgate-Palmolive, Starbucks, Johnson & Johnson, and Del Monte as we discuss how design can strategically build your brand. Plus, hear from design leaders from OXO, Procter & Gamble, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, and more who will give you actionable insights for fueling change and driving growth in your company. For more information, call 888-670-670. 8200. Visit www.iirusa.com slash BIPD or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I'll see you April 16th to the 18th at Pier 60 at Chelsea Piers in New York City. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. 
Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the artist Barbara Kruger. If you'd like to talk to Barbara, our phone lines will be open just for a few more moments, 1-866-472-5790. And Barbara, one of the things that I talked about at the onset of the show was the uh, number of different descriptions about you and your work that I found in all of our research. And I've read that you were described as a visual artist, a word artist, a conceptual artist, a photographer, a social commentator, and a political agitator. I thought those were very interesting juxtapositions. And I was wondering if you felt that artists have an obligation to create work to inspire social change and the way that a lot of your work has inspired people to think about consumerism and morals and right and wrong and sexual politics and so forth? Well, first of all, you know, hopefully, I would hope that if, um, I think that there are a lot of ways to make meaning through art. So I think that there's not one way that one should be working. And any kind of art and any kind of media makes its own kind of commentary. And just because work is explicit doesn't mean that it's, quote, political, unquote. I'm very suspicious of categories. You know, so I think that a portrait painting can be just as evocative and telling about a culture as a poster on a wall, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on how well done that work is or how eloquent it is in what it's trying to say. Um, I think that there are cliches. I really am very suspect of notions like calling something a political work or something, mm-hmm. an yeah. activist work yeah. or calling something uh, a feminist work, you know, mm-hmm. or a work based on a particular sex or race. I think that who we are, um, our subjectivity when we make work is reflected in that work and how eloquent we can reflect that um, really attests to the power and the meaning of our work, you know. But I am very resistant to categories because I think that they're engaged in or invested in trying to marginalize or categorize or close down the possible meanings that a work can make. You know, for instance, I'm a woman and I'm a feminist and I make art. Mm -hmm. I personally would not say that I make feminist art. If somebody wants to say that, that's okay, but that's certainly not what my intention is because I make work about how we are to one another. Mm -hmm. If someone wants to say that that is solely a feminist enterprise, I would question that because I think that some of the most telling and powerful work, certainly in the past, you know, two decades, uh, work that I relate to within the art world has been done by men as well as women, Mm -hmm. you know. I think interesting thing, we're in time now where there are a lot of um, shows dealing with so-called feminism. I think it should be feminisms. I think there are so many different ways to make work, being a woman, and feminisms are defined by race and class 
um, and age in many ways. Mm -hmm. So I am very suspicious of categories. So I think that if you want to make social change, you can do it in a million ways, and it doesn't have to look a certain way. I, I agree. I, I always wonder, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, women artists and women writers and women musicians and, you know, I, I feel like it's, 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 it's not only demeaning to segregate in that way, but I feel that that should really have no bearing on the way that something is viewed. Why should the person's sex or their age really have any relation to the quality of the work or the message of the work. Well, it shouldn't, but of course, of it'll course take it a while yeah. to, you know, move out of a culture where production and rank and power was so seen through the prism of race and yeah. sexuality, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, of course, things change incrementally, you know. And, and you know, I... I've always said that I would hope for a time, and this has in, has to do with race as well as gender and sexuality, that one shouldn't have to be extraordinary to be considered ordinary. Mm. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Barbara, we have another caller on the line. We have Isabel on the line. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Uh, Barbara, your work is consistently about the kindness and brutalities of social life. And I don't know about you, but I feel as if society as a whole is more desensitized. And now, even more than ever at a younger age, well, do you feel as if society is more desensitized? And if you do, I want to know, what, what do you think is the cause of that? Well, let me ask you, how are you defining that word, desensitized? What does that mean to you? Well, uh, in conjunction with the term brutalities, I just feel like at a younger age, just even... TV shows that are just for kids, kids are used to seeing other people get hurt and beat up and have less compassion and, mm -hmm. and there's less caring for one another. I mean, mm -hmm. you walk into any subway in New York City and there's a sign or a bus that says, please give your seat to the elderly or handicapped. Why do we need a sign to tell us that? Shouldn't we just do that automatically? Mm -hmm. Why should pregnant women be standing <laughs> and jostled on a crowded train? I feel like as a whole, people just don't care anymore. Yeah, you know, I, I know what you're saying, of course, but I also don't hark back to the good old days when things were better because they weren't better then. They are better now in terms of the social relation for more different kinds of people. Yes, of course, there is, there is, you know, in many ways, you know, there is like a nanosecond of difference between road rage and Chechnya, you know, the kind of anger that people have in random social settings is just the beginning of what erupts into the most violent, you know, nature of torture and, and public destruction that we see everywhere. But I do think in terms of, for instance, children, um, the sort of stuff that's broadcast for kids, yes, there's a kind of uh, social violence involved, but if you look at old cartoons done be before my time in the 30s, you know, and the 40s, some of them, the brutality in those cartoons where everyone was falling from the sky and hitting each other over the head and killing each other and yet they always came back to life again, <laughs> you know, I think that these things can can't always be read so literally, you know. But I agree with you. There is a desensitization that happens 
through a bombardment of cultural things. You know, I have questions about the notion of, of photojournalism and what it means to bear witness and showing a picture of slaughter and what does it do when we see that slaughter? Does it make us want to change the world? Does it make us want to stop it? Or does it become another distraction, another incremental entertainment that we're watching the news in between commercials, you know? Mm. I have questions about that. You know, photojournalism, whether it's on TV or whether it's print journalism, is so valorized, and yet it's important to bear witness. But when does that just become spectacle and careerism on the part of the people who need to get those pictures? What does it mean to have to see an event of of destruction that has to do with an other rather than your own subjectivity. You know, these are questions that are big, and I'm certainly not prepared to answer them, but I feel comfortable posing them for sure. Hmm. I think, I mean, just the idea that we saw Saddam Hussein hanging from the gallows on YouTube, um, things like that I find just extraordinarily um, demoralizing for our culture, for humanity, and, and for the future, but... Well, you know, look, look at the torture pictures from, yeah. you know, that, that we all know those pictures, their logos, but they haven't stopped the sort of dominant line of the administration about a few bad apples when, yeah. in fact, one has to think about what it means, you know, to... Well, what it means to have a volunteer military and what it means to be engaged in a war of choice and what it means um, when class is not really discussed in a nation um, and that class and color are so determinate about who serves in the military, you know. They're just unanswered questions. Again, this week with all this Don Imus stuff. You know, oh, my I mean, God. And people are just, everyone, it just seems like such a hypocrite in it all. You know, and to me, he's just a, a hack and a jerk who should have never had any prominence. And what was most disheartening to me was all these people that I have some degree of respect for, like David Gregory and all these newsies, Tim Russert, would go on his show all the time. And it was just ridiculous because I just think he's a hack. But then I'm a Howard Stern fan. <laughs> but Howard would never make the claims. And he knows that Imus is a total constructed jerk. Anyway. Yeah, I, I know that you're a fan of Howard Stern. Right. The whole yo dude of it all. <laughs> I love that line of yours. Barbara, we have to stop. I'm so sorry. But I wanted to thank you so profoundly for being on Design Matters with me today. Um, it's just been an honor. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe. Big thanks as well to the production team at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Steinman at Sterling. Joining me next week is New York Times Art Director Janet Froelich. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week.